Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. So today I have Krista Rowan. I can't wait for you guys all to meet her. So Krista, can you first just tell us a little bit of your origin story, where you're from, and then when you got diagnosed? Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so I am in Canada, uh, just outside of Toronto. And I was diagnosed 21 years ago with rheumatoid arthritis. There's a long story how that yeah. happened and also a very short story how that happened. But I am married I have a son who I didn't think I was going to have. So he's a miracle onto its own. And I am in a very different place now than I was. And I didn't expect to be here. What? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis journey or what I sometimes call it saga? <laughs> yeah, right. Your, your treatment journey as well. Like, did you respond well to the treatments or... Well, it's interesting because leading up to my diagnosis wasn't a saga at all. I know that a lot of people feel a lot of pains and they're not believed and they're feeling invisible and they're feeling like they have this 
projection of laziness and incapability. And I didn't have any of that. So mine was actually very rapid in unexpected and, but it turned immediately. So I was 29. I was very athletic and I actually dismissed pain, fatigue, (laughs) stiffness, and all of that because I was working out too hard. I didn't even consider it would be arthritis. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that there is a difference with rheumatoid arthritis being autoimmune driven and degenerative arthritis, but arthritis in general wasn't even a thought being 29. Um, I was climbing the ladder of the status quo with all of those success achievements. So I was newly engaged. We had just bought our first house and I was waiting to start a new job um, in January of 2000. And I went to bed one night thinking everything's fine. Just no second thought about what my future would look like. It was planned. Like most people have it planned, right? They kind of see those steps. You get married, you buy a house, you have kids, you work a job, all of those status quo kinds of things, right? And I went to went to bed and woke up the next morning in a complete head to a head to toe flare. I couldn't even get into my shoes. I wore flip flops in the snow to the doctor in January, uh, thinking that I was having an allergic reaction because it was that extreme my entire body was full and I couldn't even get dressed. I couldn't do up buttons. I couldn't do anything. So it was like, what is going on? It was like full on body flare. And thankfully my doctor recognized it that no, this is an allergic reaction. This is something a little more serious and got me into what was then an emergency rheumatologist appointment, which was two weeks. So a long time ago, rheumatologist appointments would be nine to 12 months out. Thankfully, there's a lot more people going into rheumatology. And it's kind of sad at the same time, because there's such a need for it now, like, even autoimmunity has skyrocketed, but that's a whole other issue we can talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went in and he thought maybe it was lupus. I was like, what the heck is lupus? Like, I don't know what that is. And when the rheumatologist saw me, she said, no, you have rheumatoid arthritis. I had no idea what that is. Again, I heard the word arthritis and it was insane. Um, Mm -hmm. The problem that I had with being newly diagnosed and not knowing anybody like me or not having any information available other than what was on the internet, I had two modes of thinking. I had my rheumatologist telling me that If I couldn't get the inflammation managed, I would likely be in a wheelchair within five years. And then I had the internet that showed only disfigurement, disability, and full-on disabled. So that was my perception of what my life was going to be. It was fear. So from that moment of diagnosis, that fear kicked in. I can't even tell you to the levels. It was 24-7. It's just amazing the variability because I remember in 2003 is when I got diagnosed, but that just those three years made a difference, I think, because then my doctors were like a bit optimistic because they're like, well, if you can get on some of these biologics, then you might be able to avoid the progressive, you know, joint deformity and disability that used to be, 
you know, the complete expectation with RA, but you're so right about how, if you're not given a lot of information, even people today in 2020, tell me, even with all the more information that's out there, they'll still say, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm so scared. I, I looked online and I saw all these terrible stories. It can be really a scary thing. And you were engaged at the time. It sounds like. So. I was. So you can imagine <laughs> that in sickness and health. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even know to the extent of what that was really going to mean because you can't even comprehend what no. autoimmunity looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other thing from a med therapy perspective is, well, do you want to have kids? And I was yeah. like, you mean I have to think about this now? That's a thing too, yeah. because that determined the medications that they could give me. Right. So it's like, how do we keep you managed enough without going hard hitting that, you know, produce a whole other level of side effects or whatever mm -hmm. and compromise my ability to have kids. So we had to make even decisions around that. It was a lot. A lot really fast. Yeah. And check this out. The house that we bought was three stories. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so it was like, oh. it was yep. like, oh my gosh, what's happening? It really is. Um, one of my social media friends said, you know, getting diagnosed with RA was like a bomb getting dropped in my life. Like it just, it explodes and it just affects everything. It's not just, oh, my hand hurts and my feet hurt. It's like you mentioned, it's all your expectations for the future, for your family planning, your job. I mean, what, what was your fiance's response or what, was it hard for, for you guys to get on the same page? Because this wasn't in the script, so you don't have to mention it. Oh no, 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 it's fine. No, I don't think, no, it wasn't. And I think almost, almost because he didn't know either, right? Neither of yeah. us had experience about what to expect. Right. So because there wasn't any, um, there wasn't any point of reference to say, this is what it was going to look like. It was like, oh, come on. And it was so unbelievable. I have to say it was unbelievable, especially coming from the degree of athleticism. Uh, ath yes. Ath I know what you're talking about. Of athleticism yeah. that, you know, I was so active. We couldn't even comprehend that I would deteriorate to that degree. It sounds really similar to um, uh, another woman I interviewed, Randy. She had the same experience and myself too, being a high school and then college athlete. It was like, but at least I had like about a year period where my body deteriorated slowly. So it kind of made sense at that time. I was like, I already feel really weak compared to like a year ago, but yet yeah, to go from that feeling of, no, I feel great. And then go to bed one night and the next morning, wake up with all your joints swollen and on fire. That's just like um, really traumatic. So right. for 15 years of my journey, I lived in complete fear, mm -hmm. in anger, in shame, in doom, wow. in not knowing what was going to happen day to day. Cause we know that RA is very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Um, so that affected not just my mental health, but my emotional health, you know, feeling like a burden, feeling like I'll be found out. So where we have a lot of vulnerability and information, and we can kind of see people who have different autoimmune conditions and struggles, that wasn't part of my world. Mm -hmm. And I worked in corporate, thankfully, I had a remote component to my job. 
But if I were to reveal that I was exhausted or I couldn't do something, how is that going to reflect on my ability to actually be productive? So I was terrified to let anybody know that I was struggling. Wow. So nobody knew for for 15 years. Of course, my close family knew and maybe the odd manager um, that I could trust that I knew wouldn't perceive my abilities as being incapable. But Mm -hmm. even socially, I isolated myself further because I was afraid to go to an event and shake hands. Because just me wincing or not being able to have a firm handshake in a professional environment would, to me, show that I was weak. That anticipation of a 30 second greeting kept me home. It was like Mm -hmm. it wasn't worth to go to the bathroom and be dropped and try to recover from a handshake just because I was trying to appear strong. Wow. So you had this kind of happy face you had to put on for work or try to kind of almost like passing, passing as, you know, able-bodied, which is most people's assumption of a 30 year old, 31, 32 is that if, if they don't see any obvious disability, they assume people assume you're fully able-bodied were both your fatigue and pain really bad for those 15 years or was one worse than the other, or were they like whack-a-mole, which is kind of how mine are. It's like one at a time kind of come up and down. It depended on what therapy I was on at the time. Mm -hmm. So when the therapy, so eventually I did go into biologics. I've been through five, only one worked until it failed. And then four subsequent ones failed. Um, but I did get a little bit relief with that first one Mm -hmm. and I was able to function normally again. I Mm -hmm. felt like, okay, I can be productive. I don't have to hide so much. I don't have to put so much energy into faking how much energy I have. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, um, I kind of went up and down because when the, the meds weren't working, I would crash. But Mm -hmm. isn't it amazing that as strenuous and as crippling as chronic illness can be, how much we still try to show and say that we're okay when we're not. Yeah. And it just puts you further into not feeling good at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had to almost maneuver my days around appearing okay when I wasn't. Um, I went through several bouts of disability where I'd have to use vacation days. Um, everything was hiding, right? So it, um, and when the medications weren't working as they could, then I would bridge with steroids, hoping that Mm. they would kick in again. Could I have probably been a little more disabled by appearance wise? probably, but I was bridging because my inflammation was progressing so rapidly that I had to use steroids just to keep it under control. Mm -hmm. And in a way, you know, that, that feeling of ability, you don't want to let go of it. I don't know if you've ever been on steroids and it gives you that immediate relief. Oh yeah. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like crack, right? It's like, no, don't take it away. Yeah. I was like, the first time I took prednisone, I was like, I'm going to reorganize the whole kitchen. I'm taking everything out of the pantries <laughs> right? and I'm going to put it all back in and then I'm making my life to-do list. What's awesome in hindsight is that kind of gave me a peek into that I wasn't broken. It's yeah. like, wait a minute. If I can actually function on this med. Maybe I'm not so broken after all. Maybe just some things aren't functioning. You know what I mean? It was interesting. Yeah. And where did your pregnancy fit into all of this? Did your, because pre- my pregnancy, I was one of those lucky 60% of people who goes into remission during pregnancy. Was yours that no. lucky or no? Okay. I'm looking at your face. No, and I don't want to scare people oh. with my pregnancy no, no, no. experience. Everyone's different. And that's one refrain. I think I say like every episode, like everyone's different. So be really careful not to overgeneralize from one person's experience, but yeah, your experience is your own valid experience. Just oh, totally. Yeah. So it was pretty early on. And not only because I was married when I was 30. So, you know, family planning was pretty immediate anyway. Yeah. Um, but I also had to factor in meds. Like if, if my future was disability, then I want to have a child now so that I can maybe go for the harder hitting meds later. Right. Yeah. I did not go into remission. I went off everything two months into my pregnancy. And then I was basically bedridden, like fused in 724 pain. You know, it's one of those things, you know, how people always say, Oh, life is short. It's one of those experiences where life was not short. It was breathing through every second and every minute, just waiting for nine months. Like it was pretty intense. And I didn't go into remission. If anything, my chemistry had changed as well while I was pregnant. So then what worked for me pre-pregnancy didn't work for me after pregnancy. Just for the, for the people listening, they've, the research just in the last five years that's come out, there's finally been a lot of research into the medications for rheumatoid arthritis and pregnancy. And a lot of them are actually a lot safer than, than people feared. It's just that there wasn't the research before, you know, so that, you know, yeah, people made the best decisions based on the available data. But so when, when your son came, then were you at least a little bit relieved that he was here finally, or was it? Still oh my like gosh. Blur? Completely. Yeah. Well, I actually had to go on prednisone the last month just so I was able to have yeah. him. Oh yeah. It was great. You know, I don't regret it for a second, obviously, yeah. but it was just <laughs> all of these momentous occasions, you know, whether it's getting married and then buying a house and then having a child, like all of those things that just seem normal and accessible were completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about your, your wedding? Did you, like, I remember I had four different pairs of shoes for my wedding, like one for the pictures and then one for the ceremony and then what, just for comfort, you know, cause I wanted to like be able to, cause I can't really wear heels for any long period of time because yeah. balls of my feet hurt. What were some of the ways that your RA affected your wedding? Well, uh, the night before I went to Walmart and bought Keds and uh, lace and string pearls and a whole bunch of decorations. And I made my shoes the night before with a glue gun. (laughs) 
<laughs> you are the second person to decorate their own wedding attire due to arthritis. My other friend, Sarah, the, the first episode of the podcast, she decorated her hand splint with like glitter <laughs> yeah. and things because she was like, I'm not wearing an ugly splint on my wedding day. Yeah. Like there has to be something better. So I love that you made your own beautiful lacy kids. That's and awesome. it literally was just to walk down the proverbial aisle and then they, yeah. they came off. Like I didn't even yeah. care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm interrupting really quickly to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap. It's a comprehensive online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people learn how to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis. In the course, you get to learn how to manage everything from physical symptoms like pain and fatigue to social and emotional aspects of living with rheumatoid arthritis. I even cover the logistics of things like how to track symptoms and how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments. To learn more, go to myarthritislife.net. You know, things were really, really, really rough for those first 15 years. They were. And then what happened is I hit rock bottom. I couldn't put up the facade anymore. I couldn't exert the energy I didn't have anymore. And I started to slur my words on conference calls. I started to drop things. I became extreme in my fatigue and just in breaking down from just trying to be quote normal for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up leaving a 20 year corporate career oh um, with absolutely zero vision of what my future was going to look like. Wow. So what I did know is that I didn't want to line up the, the disability line. And it's not because I felt shame about that at all. Um, I was on disability when I had my son. Mm -hmm. But in that experience, I was called weekly by the insurance company making sure I was still disabled. And I had to go through an entire form proving to them that I was disabled. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, man, do I want to keep proving that I'm disabled every week when I'm trying to get better? Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, why do I want to keep talking about how disabled I am? I want to talk mm -hmm. about how not disabled I want to be. Right, right, right. right. So I went to sleep, which sounds kind of crazy, but the exhaustion was un unbelievable. And I came across, actually, it's funny. So here's the power of social media. I came across a Facebook post. It was a link to Terry Walls. Have you heard of her? Is that the Walls Protocol? Yes. I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So Terry Walls is a MD who has MS and she reversed herself out of a tilt recline wheelchair by using diet and lifestyle. And I was like, how is that possible? Like mm -hmm. I've asked about this and I've always been dismissed. No, 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 you know, none of that works. It's all kind of hokey. And I was like, but how did she do that? And she's a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. So it, it didn't make sense to me. Anyway, I looked her up and she was having a conference in Iowa talking about her journey. And I handed the book to my husband and I said, read this. I'm going to Iowa. <laughs> wow. And he's like, what? And he was like, so he read it and he was like, okay, go. 
And so literally I went to Iowa that, so I left work in June and I went to Iowa in August and it was the first time I had ever come across the concept of root cause medicine. Mm-hmm. And it was like, what? And it wasn't dismissing any of the Western therapies or the mm-hmm. good intentions that that had. It was just a different way of looking at things. Right. So instead of constantly using ways to, to stop the inflammation, why don't you look at what's starting the inflammation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that whole shift in thinking changed everything. That's amazing. That happened so close to when you quit your job. Like- oh, and it wasn't like I was looking to quit my job and start something new. I literally couldn't get up. (laughs) Did someone help you kind of adopt the walls protocol or did you kind of follow the book or how did that work? I I followed the book in principle. Mm -hmm. So I didn't follow it to the letter. Mm -hmm. And that was more intuitive because some of the things didn't work for me and everybody's different, right? Everybody's capability is different. So I really do look at things as guidelines than the rule. And I decided that I was going to go back to school. So at 45, I -hmm. went back to school and to be a holistic nutritionist, which is really functional medicine in nature and that it looks at mind, body, and spirit Mm -hmm. um, in how all of those things are integrated and work together. So Mm -hmm. initially it was, how was I going to heal myself and how can I you know, further my knowledge and figure out what these options are. Now that I had so many options that were presented, it was like, Mm -hmm. I can do this and I can do this. I can do this. I can't even tell you, Cheryl, how empowering empowering Mm -hmm. that was. Yeah. Yeah. To go from 15 years of just being super strong and pushing yourself to the limit of what you could at the time, but still having to battle so much physically each day just to function on the most basic level. So then suddenly you had energy. It sounds like you had, you know, more energy. You know what I did have? I didn't have renewed energy at the beginning, but what I had was renewed hope. And it's one of the things now that I'm such a huge advocate for is understanding possibilities exist. Yeah. And even though they look different for everybody and how you achieve them, there are so many options and tools and ways that we can have control in such an uncontrollable way Mm -hmm. um, that Mm -hmm. it it shifted everything. And Mm -hmm. I, I started to gain momentum in figuring out the different combinations on how those options would work for me. That's, that's incredible. And so did you do your training online or was that a place that you had to go to? Like no, I went school? to actual physical school. Yeah. <laughs> What's that like? I forget what physical places are like. It, um, I had a whole new appreciation for school and I have to tell you, I backed off my teenager. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> it was like, okay, I remember now. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy. And well, and I think so much energy, I mean, and even just learning about your disease itself to begin with, I often say that, you know, when you get diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, it's like a new job. Like you need to learn a lot about how, you know, how your body works, what the disease means, what are all the different ways to manage it, you know, diet, lifestyle, exercise, you know, pain management, basic pain management techniques, like hot and cold. And, you know, so many different things that you need to learn. And I think what boggles my mind is that patients are just diagnosed and then sent, okay, come back in three months, Yeah, you know, for another 20 minute appointment. And you're like, where, 
where's the system? Like, where's the right. system to support and educate people? You know, and that's been one of my motivations, you know, in creating like little educational videos and courses to help patients just because they, you know, we need more than what's currently available. But that's my, that's my story back to you. So <laughs> oh, no, it's all good. So can you talk a little bit more of the specifics, like of what worked for you in terms of the nutrition interventions and the mindset piece as well? Yeah. So one of the things that I'm huge on, which it's kind of interesting how you bring it back, how we bring things back to basics and how we've, we've gotten so far away of away from how to just take care of ourselves. Yes. Right. And paying attention, I would say is absolutely number one. So I was reacting to different foods and I didn't even recognize that I was reacting to them. It was just the way it was. Right. Mm -hmm. I knew that stress was probably one of my number one triggers, but I just attributed to everybody has stress and, you know, it's my fault and I got to, I have to manage it or not manage it. So you know, all of these concepts started to bubble up that I became aware of that I had control over. I didn't realize that I was sensitive and in a sense, allergic and highly reactive to fragrance. Oh, wow. That was putting me, that was um, driving up flares, lack of sleep. I knew that obviously we're fatigued and you go to sleep and sometimes you don't have restful sleep, but I've learned how to sleep better. Like just so many things are integrated and they all affect each other. You know, stress affects your nutrition, your mindset Mm -hmm. affects your stress. Like there's just so many things that if we become more mindful and Mm -hmm. aware of what we have control over, and then we start to utilize them, it's amazing the results that we'll get. And here's the caveat. Some things are immediate if you don't eat something you're reacting to, obviously you're not going to react to it right away. And some things take time and in such a immediate response driven society, sometimes we discount the efficacy of our efforts because they don't happen fast enough. I didn't see a lot of my results for two years, Oh wow! but there's no downside, right? There's no downside to eating better. There's no downside to managing stress, Mm -hmm. but we don't like being uncomfortable, right? And we don't like doing things that maybe require change. Change is hard. So hard. So hard. And and when there's so much of it, it's hard to do it all at once. And Mm -hmm. so don't, right? Don't do it all at once. I didn't do it all at once. But when you start to pay attention with things that you react to immediately, it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. And I think like you mentioned hope too, it really is a positive cycle, you know, because it's like, if you believe nothing you ever try is going to work, then it's more likely that nothing you're going to try, you know, is, is going to work. And that's, that hopelessness is a stage. A lot of people go through, you know, but, um, you know, I always like to remind myself, like lack of evidence, isn't evidence of a lack, meaning like, let's say I try one diet 
and that doesn't work. I don't have, I, I don't have evidence that a diet works for my arthritis. And this is actually true, true for me. There hasn't been any one diet that's like totally made all my symptoms go away or, or whatnot, but it doesn't, I still have hope that there, there might be. Yeah. The mindset piece is just, or the attitude and the, uh, the mentality we bring towards it is, is so crucial. And it's something that I think, again, when people, you mentioned in the very beginning, when people hear the words rheumatoid arthritis, they tend to get hooked onto this idea of arthritis. That means joint pain, but really it's like a, yeah, a chronic, you know, systemic disease that affects your whole body. And it, that includes your mind. <laughs> and it's really, it's really and pain itself is processed in your brain. So yep. pain is like a mental phenomenon as well. Not to say that it's all in your head, but meaning like your brain is what makes sense of and decides whether pain is a threat or not. So we can use techniques to help our brains figure out is, is that chronic pain in my hand? Is that really a threat? Is that like the same level of threat as like a tiger? Probably not. We need to kind of convince our brain sometimes that, that some of our symptoms aren't truly a threat. Otherwise they're going to kick us into that stress gear, you know? Oh yeah. Um, Perception of what's happening is huge. Oh yeah. What, what are some of the tools that you've used in your, in your mindset for your approach to just living like the last five years with RA? I a hundred percent believe mindset is foundational and Mm -hmm. it's not to be confused with positivity because I think we can get into a positivity trap where we feel the, you know, sometimes just things suck. We don't want to feel positive about it. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. If you're, if you're sad, if you're angry, then be sad and angry. Don't invalidate being sad or angry, thinking you have to think positive and nothing's Mm -hmm. wrong. I think we fall into that trap. For me, mindset is perception of what is actually happening. Mm -hmm. Um, We have our, you know, when you go back to the triggers of stress or Mm -hmm. how we respond to stress, there's our, our body is still physiologically wired for a stress response as if we're being Mm -hmm. chased by the saber toothed tiger, right? Like I know that analogy has been used a lot, but what happened is our perception of stress, whether it be traffic or um, an argument or just something that has that acute nature to it. Mm -hmm. If we perceive that as, as um, something that's, really going to harm us. It puts us into a repetitive stress response that Mm -hmm. we're not actually going to die. We're just seeing it as something stressful and we don't get out of it. The problem with chronic stress is that we keep perceiving things as harm. Mm -hmm. And so I had to really reframe, which is one of my favorite things to do Mm -hmm. is reframe how I was seeing situations in my life how I was seeing people in my life, how I was relating to people in my life. Mm -hmm. So whether it was at work, whether it was socially, whether it was relationships, all of those things, I had to reframe what was actually happening versus maybe past experiences that I was reliving and attributing to those experiences, right? There's this whole psychological component to to stress and mindset. And that was huge for me. 
huge. It's something I manage every day. You could literally put an IV of stress into my arm and I will flare to like the highest level. So I recognize that that was huge. I've seen a lot of patients get frustrated when doctors or health professionals or just anyone brings up to them that stress can play a role in inflammation. And I think it's because some people were told, oh, you're just stressed. You're not really sick before. So they kind of get this, this idea that, oh no, it can't be stress. Cause I, this yeah. is what happened to me. I was like, no, it's not stress because I, they said I was just stressed, but I wasn't, I was really sick. So, but now that I've gotten a much more nuanced understanding of my disease, I do realize, oh, totally stress can, can flare my symptoms. And it's just part of being human. Like you said, your brain is wired to protect you and it's constantly scanning for threats and it doesn't know the difference between a real threat to your survival and just a mental one. So, you know, learning, like you said, how to reframe I've learned some of those techniques from cognitive behavior therapy or also acceptance and commitment therapy. They call it um, defusion, which means like detach. It's another way of saying detaching from your thoughts, which I I love. So you are like, just acknowledge that they're like a story. Like, oh, that's that story I tell sometimes about how I'm always late. Or that's the story I tell about how, oh, I'm too loud or I'm too much or I'm over the top. I need to be quieter, you know, something like that which is ironic now because I definitely lived a little bit of my life trying to please everyone, you know, trying to, okay, someone says you're too loud. Okay. I'm going to be a little quieter. Someone says you're too quiet. Oh, I'm going to be loud. And then finally you're like, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I want. And now I'm like, I have, you think I'm talk too much. I'm going to have a talk show, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have a podcast. You don't have yeah, to listen to it. pleasing and accommodating is huge in the chronic illness community, right? So huge. So much. Too, it's too much, too much of a good impulse sometimes to subvert your own desires and not advocate for yourself is not good for you. Yeah. So the stress component, just that whole mindfulness has really, and mindset has made a massive difference. Um, also setting boundaries. I have learned to set boundaries. So when we're talking about people pleasing and accommodating, you know, we have the whole spoony definition, but energy stores, right? I've started attaching degrees of energy that are required for tasks. And I look at them and say, okay, this is how much energy I can give to A. This is how much energy I can give to B. And once that has reached its threshold, I set that boundary. I can't say yes to anything else. You know, I can't go out. I need to go to bed at a certain time. No, I can't do that for you and be okay with that. Right. I find that in effort to not offend other people, we end up offending ourselves. That is so true. It's like, and it's, here's a question people ask me because Charlie's still relatively young. He's six years old. And people will say, well, do you feel guilty? Like if you have to prioritize your own self, I don't prioritize my own self care, like frivolously over his like basic needs and safety, but over like, let's, because if he wants to play with me for like five hours and I need to like rest for one of those hours, I don't feel guilty about that. I don't think that that's, we too often, you know, guilt ourselves about doing the basic self-care tasks to take care of ourselves. And like you right. said, you have to say no sometimes. And if you say no, because you know that you need to have sleep that night, for example, but then you spend that whole night feeling guilty or stressed because you're missing out, then you're not actually 
really taking care of yourself either. So yeah. How did you learn how to set boundaries? You know, it's kind of funny. It almost came from it, it obviously necessity, but I started to recognize that all of my enabling and accommodation and overextending and making sure everybody else was happy left me in bed while they were out doing their things they wanted to do because I was exhausted. So it's like, well, wait a minute, they're capable. And why am I, why am I trying to make myself happy through making them happy? Right. They can make themselves happy. And it was this pivotal moment of, I just can't, I just, I can't keep up. And so I started to say no, because I couldn't. And then I saw, well, wait a minute, they're okay. Why yeah. am I, why are we trying to help so much? <laughs> yeah, no, I've so had that. I'm like, the world is not going to end if I'm not like this party planning central, you know? Right. So it was really just starting with saying no the first time. It was like, oh my gosh, and nothing happened. I can say mm-hmm. no again and I can put me first here and you know, it's, I, I joke about being responsible as being me responsible. Mm-hmm. And it really is that including yourself in the equation. I think sometimes we think we're seen as selfish or not a kind person if we're not always giving, 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 but we have right. to include ourselves in the equation. I've really had to learn. I mean, that's a lesson I've had to learn over and over. I had um, this feedback every single, every single class, I would get the feedback in elementary and middle school and high school. Pleasure to have in class, pleasure to have it. That was my goal. (laughs) Pleasure to have in class, you know, don't offend anyone. Don't make anyone unhappy. Just be a pleasure, you know? And honestly, for me, it was my healthcare experiences with doctors that didn't really treat me the way I deserved that finally broke that habit of mine of being the pleasure. I wanted to be the nice patient, the good patient, you know, the one that didn't ruffle any feathers and didn't ask for anything and Mm -hmm. just made everyone else's life easier, you know, not my own. And it's like, it's taken me well into my thirties to be able to finally really come into that. So it's, it's an evolution for many of us. It took me into my forties to learn that. Well, yeah, that's just, okay. You know what? The point is I learned it. <laughs> yeah, no. And yeah, I said, I would say it's still a work in progress, but okay. I have to talk about TikTok. I okay. have to, because that's how I got to meet you. Um, so what inspired you to join TikTok? So I would, the short answer would be to mortify my son, but that's yes. not really why. <laughs> no. I've seen a lot of parents on TikTok saying that. Yeah. No, that wasn't actually the reason. So he did show me a video that was really funny and I had no idea what it was. And I thought, you know, maybe there's more. Mm -hmm. So in June, I created a TikTok account and just started watching videos in place of the news. Mm -hmm. And I found that my mood shifted dramatically. Just the creativity and the realness and the dancing, which I was so drawn to Mm -hmm. and just the music. I, I think musically. So I felt very aligned with it. It was nothing. It was like no other social media platform where I felt this heaviness and I don't know, it was, it just felt real and it was fun. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what, I need to post, I need to post and just 
be part of this. I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I'll just do like this simple little dance. Right. I, it was literally a silly, you know, touch your shoulders and put your arm up and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Like, it, was, <laughs> it was really nothing. So that was why I joined TikTok. What it evolved to astounded me. Yeah. So in the when I joined, I don't know if you know the shuffle dances, there was a lot of jumping yes. and a lot of fast movements. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I can't do that. Like, I can't jump. I can't move as quickly. You know, I'm more stiff in the morning. How am I going to work up to that? So not understanding TikTok that you can kind of do your own thing. I thought it was all about doing the trends. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, I'm 50. I don't need to do trends. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. for myself. And as a, as a joke, not joke, I thought, well, I'll do a post called I can't shuffle, but I can Shakira. And it was insane. The response that that got, I was like, what is going on right now? So I would show my son. So it was 13,000 views. Good. So is 30,000 views. Good. Amazing. It it was going crazy. I think it was like over 800,000 views at one point. Anyway, so that aside, it just kind of lends to the popularity of, I just went on to kind of do some silly things not to be noticed. Mm -hmm. And from that, people started to ask me questions about doing the move. And I said, well, just bend your knees. And I did a demonstration. If you bend your knees, then you'll by default move your hip. Mm-hmm. And it was very belly dancing in nature, which I did 13 years ago after disability, only for low impact range of motion type music, uh, music movement. Mm-hmm. So it was something that was innate in me. And mm-hmm. I just started moving that way. Cheryl, what came from that was astounding. I didn't expect that by watching me move, it was inspiring people to move that couldn't move and wouldn't move. And it started this whole new direction of how I saw my presence on TikTok. And it wasn't even inspiring people as it was, they were inspiring me. Right. Right. Yeah. So I've noticed a lot of people like to duet your dances, which means that you do a dance and then, and I've done this with you too, where then <laughs> yeah. they, you can make a side-by-side video of someone's right. existing video. So is that how you discovered the, the responses or was it the comments as well? People giving these comments. It about, was oh the God. duets really took me back. I had no idea what a duet was. And I started yeah. getting these video mentions. Someone's done a duet with you. And they were women from all over the world, like South Africa and Kenya and the Philippines, just standing up beside their bed or just in a room, like just being themselves and dancing with me. And I was like, what is going on? Like, (laughs) you know, I, and just watching them move. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's, it's so beautiful because I value movement so much. And for me to not even realize I was giving off this message to just move however you can. Right. And then, and you did put, had you put on your profile from the very beginning that you have rheumatoid arthritis? 
I did. Okay. I, I, did. I was looking up when I just joined, I looked up anyone that had rheumatoid arthritis. Like I just follow, follow, follow. Cause I wanted to connect to as many people. I've been amazed for myself, at the power of just showing up when you have a disease, like showing up and doing whatever makes you feel good, you know, whether that's dancing or puppeteering or, you know, totally are some people are really into like making pretty, you know, calligraphy or something. But if you, yeah, showing up and doing what makes you feel inspired or feel alive is so inspiring to other people, you know? Well, and here's, what's crazy is that, you know, they have little bio that you were just talking about. I had no idea was what I was going to write. Yeah. Um, am I going to be a mom? Am I going to be a coach? Am I going to be a wife? Am I going to be a speaker? Like, how do I represent myself? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be me. No one even knows I'm on here. So yeah. I'm gonna, and I want to dance. So I'm going to say I'm a rheumatoid arthritis warrior on a remission and I'm going to mm-hmm. dance. I'm doing that with movement. Yeah. And it really resonated with people. And it surprised me the response that I got because I thought people would be like, oh, good for you and be negative. But they were like, oh, mm-hmm. you inspire me and you give me hope. And mm-hmm. I want to dance with you. And I was like, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's actually, yeah, it, you know, it makes me, um, it makes me emotional thinking about it because it's just, it's really been tremendous. I had a lady who has MS, who hasn't danced in 10 years, who did a duet with me saying I inspired her to move. And now she does videos, letting go of her walker. Like, and you know, it's just like, what? I Um, saw someone duetting you who is in bed. Like they, that's where they're at. They can't, they couldn't get out of bed that day. And they did a you know, they moved what they could, you know, moving your wrist, moving. I know it's making me emotional too, thinking about it, this. It's, and that is truly what it's all about. So I almost have this campaign that I want to keep promoting and just to love yourself moving is the, te- the tagline that I use yeah. that it all counts. You know, some days I have really good movement days and I do some crazy dances just because I'm challenging myself too. Yeah. And then some days it's a step touch and it's just whatever I can. And the whole point is not to dance like me. It's to dance like you or not even dance, just move like you and enjoy, enjoy that possibility and that opportunity to just move. And the arthritis foundation in the U S had a campaign for a while. I'm not sure if the Canadian one did too, called joints in motion. Oh yeah. Saying, like, you know, motion yeah. is lotion. Get your, I thought that was a great campaign, you know, getting your joints moving, you know, and I think dance is, you know, um, for people who are, who feel compelled, like you said, you, your brain thinks in songs. It's so funny to say that. Cause I felt the same way. Like I have choreographed like elaborate dance routines in my head <laughs> consistently since I was like six years old and like went to gymnastics class and dance class. And yeah, my sister and I used to choreograph dances to, you know, Tina Turner, Mariah Carey, kind of like, you know, the late eighties. Um, and it's, it's just incredible. TikTok has just allowed this forum for people to not only express themselves like through dancing and stuff, but also connecting to others. And there is a really thriving, you know, chronic illness, spoony community. out. There. And even when I'm on my TikTok lives and people ask me questions or some of the messaging that I'll put on my posts, 
-hmm. I always say that dance is really just a no rules collection of movement. That's all it is. I love that. Right. So stop trying to formalize how you dance and make it look so specific. Just move. And that's dancing, put music on and move. And you're dancing, even if it's a wrist, like it doesn't matter what it is. Could we just eyebrows? Yeah, it's all right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And so when you've done um, these lives, cause that's how I started chatting with you a little more, what have, what have been some of the things that have surprised you that have come up or things that you want you'd like to share about? What's really caught me off guard is how I resonate with different people. Hmm. So people want to know my dance history. They'll ask me if I'm a professional dancer. I'm like, no. Um, Some (laughs) people ask me about RA. They'll ask me about diets. They'll ask me about, you know, different lifestyle. So it's, it really runs the gamut depending on um, how people are relating to me. Mm -hmm. Because I do different posts. Some of them I do for stress and mindset and kind of holistic types approaches Mm -hmm. and then the other side is just dance not necessarily for someone to duet but I'm challenging myself too it's just fun right Right. so almost by proxy people are are gravitating to that some people when they saw your videos didn't think that you had any sort of activity limitations or restrictions due to your rheumatoid arthritis and that so you decided to make some videos to address to that. that. Yeah. yeah. What, what was the response to that? Like one of my absolute favorite duets was a lady that danced with me from a wheelchair. And it's funny when you talk, when I talk about my history and not wanting to be seen and being very vulnerable, Um, it was a big step for me to show that. And it was so incredibly freeing. It was like, I have nothing to lose and nothing to hide anymore. Like I am so going to be myself now because that's all I know how to be. And so I showed, you know, a hand movement where I have some finger drop happening. You know, I can't straighten my elbows. I can only bend my knees so much. Like there's things looking at me because I've compensated in how I move that I appear normal, but I still have those limitations. But when I called them out, people saw themselves in me and they were like, Oh, well, okay. I can do that too. So it was, um, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. The response. This is going a little bit more broad, but many of us fall into that little mental trap of like, well, everyone has it easier than me or like, Mm -hmm. well, she's lucky because she can dance, but I can't, but it's everyone's story is always more complicated than we're assuming, right? Like some of the other day it was like, oh, how long have you been in remission? I'm like, well, I'm not currently in remission. But, you know, but they're like, oh, well, we assume because we saw you dancing similar, you know, because I had done some dancing on my Instagram and I'm like, well, no, I'm dancing like despite you know, some joint pain and inflammation, right. I still have it, but you can't tell from looking at me when I was in remission and I looked pretty similar, but I can certainly tell from the inside what it yeah. feels like. And, and you can see like some diff- joint deformities in, in, in my case, if you know how to look really closely, but yeah, in your case, yeah, you can. And mine showing. too, right. You can yeah. tell if you look really closely, but I think people are more focused on the energy and just Yeah. People always say they're very attracted to my energy and it's like, well, I'm moving. (laughs) Yeah. Like I literally 
that energy is not coming with the need to entertain. That need is coming from, oh my God, I can move, right? Like it's, um, it's just interesting how it all translates. Did you, so you learned how to belly dance, you said 13 years ago, was that right? I took lessons 13 years ago. Have you, have you been dancing since then, like kind of on your own or was it kind of a hobby that you dropped and then picked back up again recently? Well, I've danced my entire life, but the belly dancing specifically is because when I came off disability in 2007, I needed to quote exercise, right? I needed to rebuild my muscle. I needed to um, start to create more range of motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needed to be low impact. So dance was what I knew mm-hmm. and belly dancing specifically was low impact. It wasn't like hip hop, right. Or right. jazz right. or something that had very specific jerky wide range of movement. Mm-hmm. So it was something that I could make it as low impact or as high, high impact as I needed. And yeah, the techniques just kind of gave me the range and the, um, uh, the ability to move and it it's remained ingrained. Yeah. So once you learn those, those techniques, cause it helps with posture and everything else, it, it just kind of stays with you. You have 400,000 likes on TikTok. Is that what I'm at? Yeah, 400,000. It's amazing. Yeah, and again, not, I mean, it, the numbers are important because, you know, it means that those are people you've been inspired. And I think what amazes me is that I didn't know that you, you only, or you initially got on TikTok and thought you were, it sounds like, let me not put words in your mouth, but from what you said earlier, that you were a little bit disappointed that you couldn't hop on some of the big trends, like the shuffling trends. And that you decided, okay, well, what can I do? I can do the belly dancing, but now that's like what you're known for. Like you, you know, you stand out because that's, you're not doing you like, you know, just five, six years ago, were feeling like you had to hide this diagnosis and that you were isolated. And now you're just out there, like in the world, doing your tick, like doing your dances, sharing that you have rheumatoid arthritis. And I mean, how has that felt to be, to go from being so private to being public about your diagnosis? Well, being public about my diagnosis has been incredibly freeing. I started doing that a couple of years ago and talking about it. And it was weird because it was this double-edged sword of, do I come across as I'm complaining or that I'm trying to validate something that I'm doing versus, yeah, I just have this and I don't have to give an explanation, but just be aware. Right. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we feel like we have to over explain Mm -hmm. and I don't explain anymore. I don't. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I'm want to hide. I just don't feel I owe people an explanation. I think sometimes you know, we fall into that trap that we want to be seen, we want to be validated, we want to be um, cared for, we want all of these things, but it's incredibly freeing to almost just say it is what it is, and then to go on and do what I do. Like, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you setting the bar high and setting the bar low, I think because people without chronic illness don't understand it, when you try to explain it, they have, they attach their own perception to it. 
that I don't even bother. So I just say what it is. And then I don't, I just move on. Right. Right. That's such a common challenge of trying to explain it for the first time. Yeah. At the end of the day, you don't need to explain it or, or justify it. I think the other thing I felt just I needed to justify it. Like, well, I'm sick enough to where you need to accommodate me, but I'm not so sick that you need to like, not include me. Here's the analogy, Cheryl, that I use to help get myself over that is I think when people give their advice, right? My grandmother, my aunt, my brother, (laughs) we've all heard that, right? Yeah. Eat kale, do yoga, do all these things. And I think people may make suggestions with good intentions, but trying to explain to somebody what chronic illness feels like when they don't have chronic illness is like expecting a man to know what it feels like to have a baby, Mm. right? They can have empathy. They can have some awareness. They have an idea of what it will be like, but they really don't know. So I don't put the energy into it. Yeah. If somebody wants to give me advice, I'll say thank you because I'll just, you know, you take it or leave it. It doesn't mean it's going to define me and how I, it's like, oh my gosh, you said to do this or not. Now I'm confused. I, I just don't care. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, that's so freeing. Like, you, you know, it's so like, freeing. It's freeing to not care what other people think. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I just, you don't realize how much time you spend caring in a and altering your behavior based on what other people think until you stop doing it. And And it's not being rude. It's really just self-preservation and just recognizing that you don't need that validation. Yeah. That you don't, yeah. Not just like, Oh, I'm going to make it a goal not to care what people think. Like I actually truly don't. Right. Like, yeah, it's, I I'm, it's a work in progress for me. It fluctuates. Like I'll have periods of time where I will successfully feel that way. But other times I'm like, Oh, it's taken work to get there. It's not just a decision one day. I'm just not going to care. No, no. Yeah. You have to work at it so that it sticks. I always love hearing people's advice to newly diagnosed patients. Is there anything that you like to, you know, wisdom? I mean, gosh, how do you condense it? (laughs) Actually, I'm very passionate about this. Oh, good. I am. I'm very passionate about this. And five years ago, my answer would have been different. Oh, okay. Okay. Tell me. Um, Lay it on. <laughs> what's that? Lay it on me. I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> so I think, no, I believe that we can't see our autoimmune diagnosis as having two points, right? We can't, or our experience mm. of having two points of diagnosis and doom or right. diagnosis and cure. Because I think if we look at those as the two endpoints, we will always feel defeated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can't discount the journey of progress in between, right? So not not all things are going to line up as they may have pre diagnosis, but we can't let go of our we can't let go of our ability and our wins that are possible. You know, one of the things, have you ever read Four Agreements? The Four Agreements? Oh, yes. A while ago. I should reread it though. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So that book resonated me with me so, so closely, but the one that I literally tell myself every single day is always do your best. And yeah, what that means is that stop trying to be a 10 and operate it as a 10 all the time. You can't do that as a human. And you certainly can't do that with chronic illness. So if you're a four one day, be the best four. If you're operating right. at an eight one day, be the best eight. But when I you look at that. all the options and opportunities that you now have with whether it's diet, lifestyle, movement, there's just so many things we can do. Look at those wins and progress and don't just look at an endpoint because you're going to miss quality of life in between. Oh, so true. Yes. Yeah, so many people in the beginning, they just want to find that end point of making it go away. Basically it's like the rheumatoid arthritis is like a fly that I just want to like swat away. Make it like, stop. Yeah. Yeah. Make it stop versus yeah. What are the opportunities? So complicated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. That's such good wisdom. What, is there anything else that I didn't touch on that you wanted to share with the audience? It's been 21 years wow. and I'm 50 and I never thought with a chronic illness and being at the age I'm at that I would be at probably the best place that I've been in my life. Like what? Wow. wow. There is chills. There's so much opportunity and there's so much quality of life and there's so much possibility. And there are so many wins that we can achieve if we, if we just allow ourselves to go through the process. Yeah. And, it, and the process is ebbs and flows, right? Some days are absolutely going to suck. When I have days that suck, and I do, yeah. I just know that I'm not going to be stuck there. So I'm okay. Like I'm okay with working through that, knowing that on the other side of it, whether it's two days a week or whatever, that I'll get through it and things will be okay again. I count that win. And I know that I'm not doomed. It really resonates because it's, we get, yeah, there's this idea that again, the times when we don't have pain or a lot of symptoms, those are the good times. And the times that we have pain or fatigue are the bad times, but learning how to live moment by moment and see what can you still do in that moment? Can, are there still opportunities to connect to your values and what you Can love? I make one yeah. more comment on that show, oh, which please. I think has really been a huge mic drop understanding for me Yeah, is I think when we're diagnosed, we, we mourn our life, right? We, yeah. we miss so much what we used to be. And then we also think about what we could have been and we're stuck in that, that two-sided mourning. Yes. I think we really need to not look backwards and stop trying to reclaim and relive what has passed. And if we really embrace possibilities and we look forward, then we're going to make strides in achieving possibilities and moving forward. Like so really true. position where we're looking. So, so true. And not looking forward at what actually is is possible versus what we wish could be possible 
too. It's and sometimes they're one in the same, but yeah, if they're that's not, true. that's okay. Yeah. What? Here's the thing. What if it's better? Right. In so many. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I was really wrapped into that, you know, I'm invincible kind of achievement mindset, like the maybe alluded to a little bit earlier. And yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot of lessons earlier in life than I would have if I didn't have a chronic illness in terms of, you know, I am, I have limited resources. Like I can't, I have to go to sleep every night, if nothing else, (laughs) much less having a chronic illness. So learning how to be like, you know, figure out what your limits are and craft your life around that in a way that's like, still feels good and exciting. And that's been big for me, but oh, this is so, I'm so excited for my audience um, to, <laughs> I know it's a little exciting for me to say the word audience. I'm going to put all your information in the show notes, but just in case someone just is like listening and like has their TikTok open and was like, what's her name? Like, where can they find <laughs> you on TikTok and Instagram? Like, like, I don't yeah. So both of the same. So TikTok and Instagram are Kikra18. So it's K-I-C-K-R-A 18. Mm-hmm. So kick RA. Yeah. And um, yeah, my Instagram, I need to pay a little more attention to. No, um, I've been having way too much fun on TikTok. Well, now but- you got to put some of your TikToks on reels. That's what I've been doing because reels uh, Instagram loves their reels. I will do that. And what I tend to do on Instagram is put a little bit more explanation than what I can convey yeah. in a 15 second clip on Instagram, um, TikTok, or TikTok rather. So yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Really, really appreciate like all your wisdom and your story. Just, I really know that there's so many people that are going to hear this and feel really empowered. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis, from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.